throughout the Bible. Uh, I'm sure as many of you are aware, uh, people are praised for believing the right things. Okay, They're for uh, particularly kind of right things, I guess, about God. And people are often criticized or even judged quite seriously for believing the wrong things about God. Now, um, this is set against the backdrop of our culture, which would see uh, diversity of beliefs and lifestyles as a real positive expression of human freedom, uh, curiosity, uh, individual expression. But in the Bible, actually, uh, differing on religious particulars or kind of uh, having different spiritual, uh, different forms of spirituality, well, that is one of the things that God is most concerned about of all things. Now, as we go through this book of Judges, up there, that's our series uh, we're looking at the moment. Uh, actually, what we see is a thorough examination of questions like this. And we'll see that not just today, uh, but in all uh, the weeks following for this term. I think this is a, one of the main themes of this whole book. And examines some of these really kind of deep and serious questions about some of the things, that the, not just at the root of faith, but at the root of what it is to be a human being, uh, actually. And I'd like to pick up on some of those questions as I continue from when Jonathan left off. Did, do you have Jonathan with you? Two weeks ago, last week? Last week, okay, so you get a, the continuity in that regard. And I want to begin to look at the book's, um, what can we say, heroes. I, I use that term reasonably loosely, as I'm sure you'll see in weeks to come. But we will look at the book's heroes, uh, the guys called the Judges, okay? Because this book, uh, the book of Judges, uh, to give you a picture of it, it starts with an introduction, first three chapters. Jonathan covered them last time. And then at the end, it has four chapters, a kind of epilogue, uh, kind of appendix at the end. Uh, but in the middle, it does what it says on the tin. It's about these guys, the judges, okay? And uh, while we could see, I suppose, some uh, help from us in the name, in they did do some legal things. They settled disputes among different people in the land. Essentially, they should just be seen, the judges were heroic leaders of, uh, I would say of Israel, but more accurately of particular tribes of Israel in about a 300-year period, I think it is, between, uh, those who you know your Bible history, I, I guess I would know this, from when Joshua led Israel into the Promised Land to the beginning of the monarchy, where Saul, David, Solomon, okay, it's the bit in the middle, and these are the leaders of parts of the nation at that time. And I want to pick up uh, the very first guy, he's not a particularly well-known judge, okay, and uh, um, you might work out why in a few minutes, okay? But he's a guy called Othniel, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, if that helps you to work out why your words are not exactly the same as the ones I say, or that they are. Um, but Judges 3, 7 to 11, the very first judge. Are we ready? Ready for the first judge. Okay, good, nice, let's go. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, if you have come across this book before, as I mentioned a minute ago, you'll know that what we've got coming up is tales of military adventure. We've got family dramas. We've got uh, violent murders. We've got all the grisly details of it all. I mean, we've, we've got it all coming to us, right? So if you uh, knew that, 
uh, you might feel a bit of a letdown at the end of our first judge because it's not the most exciting description of his career, is it? Like, uh, I'd say this is a pretty functional account of Othniel's life and times. It's bare bones, skeleton account at best. And the tendency I've had, and I don't know if any of you would have had before, is just to rush over Othniel and get onto the one, the, the left-handed guy who stabs the, the guy in his Fat comes out and rah. If you want to know that story, go to Ehud. He's next, okay? <laughs> yeah, Stephen's like, yeah, my favorite Bible character. That, that's seriously one of the most gruesome passages in the Bible, okay? However, I want to rest on Othniel today because Othniel actually, uh, he plays a really important part in the book of Judges. And he will both help us to understand what we're going to see later in the book, but also he kind of by bringing things down to this bare bones account helps us to see one of the major themes that we'll see in all of the accounts of the judges, okay? Well, so what do I mean? Well, Othniel technically sets the pattern of all that is to come in the accounts of these, these characters, these heroes that we're gonna see because the basic structure of almost every account that we will see of judges, whether it be Solomon or Gideon or Jephthah or Deborah or whoever, okay, follows the same pattern we see here. And the pattern is, very, is, is this, is firstly, the people do evil. Secondly, God gives them into the hands of their enemies. They're subjected to their enemies then for a certain amount of time. Israelites cry out to God for help. God sends them a judge to be their rescuer, rescued from enemies, result is peace for a certain amount of time, then the judge dies, okay? So if you would like a summary, if at any point you're lost in this series, I think I've got uh, something to help you here. The judge's plot generator, which you will see here, uh, that will work for almost all of the judges, okay? So if you want to get your phone out, take a picture, think oh, I'm lost here, that will be the, the thing we... We go to it. And actually, when some of those bits are missing, which will be in some of the judges' accounts, you should smell a rat and go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because there's a reason, right? So there we go. Just to help you navigate the next few months, that's that. And I think that can be helpful on its own. But when we see that, it does another thing for us that I think is helpful. Because what it shows us here, which we see in the other accounts, but I think can sometimes get lost in the detail and the adventures and all that stuff, is that while a lot of the stuff in this book will seem very foreign to us, and it will seem very kind of, this is a very different world to my world, and it really is a different world to our world. Actually, at the root of it, the story of Israel at this time is a story of really all humans in all places everywhere. And these stories of kind of wickedness and oppression and repentance and deliverance that we see, we'll see something of what it is for all of us to be humans. Essentially, Israel's story under the judges is our story. And I think we see that in all the judges, but most clearly we see it in Othniel, the kind of prototype judge in this sort of pattern uh, that we see here. So I want to take, uh, go through the passage again and show you exactly what I mean by that. Okay, so let's go back to verse 7 and let's start there and just go through and I'll show you what I mean. Uh, verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. The Israelites' start is not a particularly good one. They did evil. Evil is a word that we usually avoid uh, in general conversation, okay? Uh, used by tabloid journalists every now and again if something particularly bad happens, but it's a word we're not that comfortable with. The Bible, though, starts here. The Israelites did evil in the eyes, uh, in the Lord's sight. Okay, now, I say this is the starting place for the Israelites. Uh, actually, technically, this isn't the starting place. That's a number of books back in the Bible uh, and it's in a very different place because where Israel as a nation starts is not doing evil it's in the specific call of God uh, to be a certain people and to do a certain job 
Okay, so Israel uh, would have, and the guys alive at the time would have carried banners over them of national identity, things like this. Uh, God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was a promise given them over and over again, or a promise like this. Through you, Israel, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And those are the kind of big banners that the Israelites would have held. That's their national identity. That's who they were as people. And that's where things started for Israel. But as you see here, they rebelled against God. They didn't follow his way to live and they disobeyed him. And this isn't the first time uh, in, and it definitely is not going to be the last time as you're going to see as we move on in Judges. But it's a good example of exactly that thing happening again. Let's move then from Israel in the time of the Judges to us. Because I think our story is very, very similar to that story. For all of us, the Bible makes clear that we were uh, made with a calling on our lives. We were made, it says in Genesis 127, in God's image, in the image of God. And what that means, among a number of other things, is uh, we were called to reveal something of God's perfect nature to all around us. We were made to reflect his image. We've got a calling to represent the giver of life, the source of all joy and life to all that is around us. It's a mighty calling. It's a wonderful privilege for us. But just like Israel, we've all chosen uh, to reject this calling and live in a different way. Isaiah, prophet in the Old Testament, puts it like this. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. What's the problem? Well, the problem is this. Each of us has turned to his own way. It's the problem of human beings, we turn to our own way. Frank Sinatra sung it best, we say all together now, a rousing rendition. But I did it my way, okay? I did it my way. The problem with I did it my way, because sung with such kind of pride, that's what I did. The Bible says, yeah, that, he's right, he did do it his way, and that's what all humans naturally do. But it's not a source of pride, that's the problem we've got here. Because when we do things my way, we don't do things his way. And that's a problem. And as I pointed out at the start of this passage, at the start of this talk, uh, this is a big deal to God. God takes this seriously. Uh, so we see in verse 8, God's response. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. <laughs> just, just so you know, I haven't stumbled over that once yet. Just, just saying, okay, just saying. I've got to say it again now, haven't I? And the Israelites served Koshan Rishathaim for eight years. A lot of practice has gone into that. <laughs> God responds to what seems like a theological misunderstanding here with anger. He, he is a very extreme reaction. And then, not just anger, just, not just an emotional response, he punishes them for this, okay, for not following the spiritual direction of their ancestors. Actually, even in this very brief account, even what we've seen so far, the author is already giving us clues to help us to see what is going on here and why God might justly react like this. Actually, even more as we'll see, while there is definitely an element of judgment here, the author is also pointing us to how God's action here is for the good of the Israelites. It's for their own good, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Let's just, just think about those two verses. I don't think I've got them on the same screen at the same time, so you might have to use your memory. But there is one word that is repeated in verse 7 and 8, and it's the word serve. Okay? What has happened so far? Well, what has happened so far is they started choosing to serve other gods, and they end up being forced to serve actual human rulers, and actually pretty cruel ones at that if history's accounts are anything to go by. They begin, just to put it another way, they begin by choosing their spiritual masters. They end up with no choice at all, serving very physical human masters. 
What you've got to see here is that God's punishment on Israel is not an arbitrary sanction that he just pulls out. You've done this wrong, so I will do um, this to show you you've done something wrong. No, no, in, a, in many ways, it's just a natural conclu- consequence of what they were doing in the first place. So to give an example, if, I, if you're caught for speeding, uh, no, no, put it slightly differently. There, is a, there are a number of different consequences of speeding. One could be you, you speed and there's a little flash behind you and you get a letter through the post saying something like, uh, here's some money you have to pay, points in your license, it'll go to this reasonably boring but slightly informative slap on the wrist for a whole morning on a Saturday, which is the right way to time. Apparently, someone told me that that was like that. Okay, uh, so that could happen. Now, I'm not saying that's unfair. I think there's a very much a fairness in that, but it's arbitrary. It's just like, here's this, you're speeding. What should we do? Uh, let's send you in the morning to Dudley or something, okay? It's arbitrary. I'm not saying it's unfair. I'm just saying it's arbitrary. There is another consequence to speeding, and it would be if you choose to go around a corner at 50 miles an hour when there's those little black and white arrows, you may well hit a tree, okay? Do you see? They're, they're consequences, but they're the same. One's the natural consequence. One's the punishment pulled out of nowhere. This here is presented as a punishment, but also as really more like the tree than the speeding ticket. It's just the natural consequence of what's happened. They served gods in their hearts. They end up serving masters with their lives. See, the thing is that we often draw a very sharp line between what goes on internally and what we do externally. Many people would say things like this. They say, what you believe is a completely private matter. Okay? What they're saying really with that, and that's quite common, particularly when talking about people in office, for example, what they're saying is, you can read your Bible all you like, you can pray all you like, you can go to church all you like, just make sure it doesn't affect how you do your job, or how you treat other people, or how you raise your children, or whatever it may be, okay? And there's this divide between what goes on in here and here, and what we do. Now, while that's a very, very common way of thinking, I would imagine, I just want you to think about that (laughs) for a second, okay? That doesn't actually match up with our experience of human beings. Actually, the Bible uh, would have a very different view about how those things relate, and it would rely much, uh, much more wisely up with what we know about human psychology and behavior, not just about what we talk about in church. The Bible says that our beliefs and affections absolutely define who we are and also what we think, speak, and do. And the Bible is particularly clear about one kind of beliefs, and that's beliefs about God. Beliefs about God are absolutely critical in educating who we will appear to be and who we will become. And in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, there is a passage, it's a dense passage, and it's, uh, it's sometimes a difficult passage, but you know, looking around here, I, I can see the, the caliber of this room, you know. You know I, I would say I didn't do this out, but I did, and I said exactly the same thing, so sorry to, to blow that water. But anyway, I, it's the caliber across the church, you know. And so I want to spend a few minutes going into that, because this passage, as you'll see, acts as a direct commentary on Judges 3, 7 to 8. And you'll see all the things we've seen appear, and Paul talks about them and goes into a little more depth on them. So um, I'm going to flick through a few verses in Romans 1, but it's in Romans 1, 18 uh, to 32. Okay, the main bits will flash up behind me, okay? Romans 1, 18, Paul starts like this. But God shows his anger from heaven. It's a confrontational beginning to, as what you'll see, a pretty confrontational passage. But just to point out, exactly the same as Judges 3. Paul agrees that sometimes God gets angry. What is he getting angry about? Well, it says God's anger is directed towards people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. 
In other words, exactly like in Judges 3, they forgot about God. That was their first crime, it says. They did evil, they forgot about God. And that's exactly what's happening here. In Paul's mind, we all have uh, this kind of low-level consciousness that there must be someone out there. There must be more to life than this. There must be someone in the great beyond. Okay? Paul thought that was true of every human being. And we could be genuinely hazy on the detail, like kind of authentic, say, look, I just don't know. My mind doesn't stretch that far. That, that's fine. But Paul said that all human beings really have two choices. That we can either kind of follow the, the pointing of this spiritual compass in our hearts and try to investigate, kind of put some more detail on this kind of general great beyond, or we ignore it completely and choose to live our lives as if God didn't exist. For Paul, those are the two options for us as people. Paul goes on to explain what the second of these looks like and what it results in. Verse 23, instead of worshipping the glorious ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Again, note exactly the same as what's happening in Judges. I think the images of Baal and Asherah poles, without going too much into what they are, would fit into idols of this sort of nature. Okay? Asherah poles would be images of, sort of deities on poles, Baal images, as far as I'm aware, were usually carved out of stone in some sort of way. Okay? Now, I recognize that for many of you at this point, this might be just seeming massively removed from your life. <laughs> I think uh, whether you come here today worshiping God, calling yourself a Christian, or not doing that and just coming and visiting and seeing what's going on here, my guess would be, and I might be massively off beam here, there are not many people here who are going home and bowing down to rocks and wood and stuff. Okay? If you are, that, you know what? Conversation. I'm just guessing that would not normally be the case. But if then you think, well, then this doesn't affect me, that is to massively misunderstand idolatry, okay? Idolatry in the book of Judges, and even probably Paul's time more than today, was often an overtly religious thing, okay? But that's not the case uh, now. But idolatry still exists. What is idolatry? Well, to put it as simply as I can, idolatry is treating something as God that is not God, I think that's the simplest definition I can give. We put a little bit more on that. I suppose we could call this. We could say idolatry is treating something as having ultimate value that does not objectively have ultimate value. Now, I, I don't think this is massively, a massive leap is needed for us here. We, we use this word regularly in our culture like this. Um, so, check the memories of people here. Before X Factor, there was... Some said that with too much vigor there. Okay, I won't. Someone at the south side really was like, Pop Idol, those were the glory days. Lord, bring them back. Anyway, they didn't quite go that far, but I knew what was going on in their heart. I see it all. Okay, <laughs> but um, we talk, even if you don't remember the show, and uh, probably better for you if you don't, um, <laughs> um, we understand that phrase. Like, what's a pop idol? A pop idol is a pop star who's idolized, elevates a level of hero, role model, even obsession. Okay, and uh, mem uh, not maybe memories for some, but images of kind of posters on teenagers' walls or uh, pencil cases with hearts on them might spring to mind from your experience, maybe, or from other people's experience, much more likely. Okay, seeing the caliber we've got in the room here. However, it's not just uh, teenagers uh, and ancient worshippers that struggle with idolatry. No, idolatry uh, tempts us all. We are all tempted to make things of ultimate value in our life that don't belong there. Money, status, health, family, sex, power, the list goes on and on. 
All of these things are fine in their own way, but according to the Bible, none of those things fit at the center of our lives, okay? Serving such things actually means, Paul puts it very bluntly in verse 25, is worshiping and serving the things God created instead of the creator himself. And I ask you, who do you worship? Who are your gods? Some of you would may respond and go, Johnny, if only you stuck around for the worship rather than swanning up north, you'd find out. Because in a few minutes, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing to Jesus. I'm going to sing to God. And it's obvious that's who my God is. Actually, I don't think the answer to that question is best found when we gather on a Sunday to sing songs. I don't think that's the place we should look first and foremost. It's an important thing we do, but it's not the, plate, the barometer of our, who we worship. I, I tell you what, I think answers to questions like this are sometimes more helpful. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you get excited about more than anything else? If you're being honest, what things in your life could you absolutely not live without? The Bible's clear. There is only one who deserves that sort of attention and that sort of focus, and it's God. And if anything else does those things ahead of him, that thing is an idol. Just again, to note this, the the kind of way this is wrapped into the very fabric of the world, this is not just a rule plucked out of nowhere. It's just not just that God's got a bit of a bee in his bonnet about idolatry. Now, God knows as our creator that he has wired us in a certain way, that he created us to relate to him in a certain way. And the only way we can find fulfillment in our lives is if we put him in the right place. God is central in everything, is the universe, and therefore we're made to reflect reality. And therefore, he needs to be central in our lives. And that's how we function best as people. And people all throughout history have realized this. Psalm 62, the great uh, Jewish king David put it very succinctly. My soul finds rest in God alone. What a, what a wonderful verse. My soul finds rest in God alone. Not in the Bible, but a few centuries later, St. Augustine, amusingly of a place called Hippo, which I always find very funny, uh, early church leader, uh, he said this. What a wonderful phrase. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Soak that in. That's a gourmet quote right there. Love it. Really good. When we see this, I think, I think we do start to understand why idolatry is such a problem. Because it's not just that idolatry puts God out a bit. Now, idolatry leads us to being at odds with ourselves, with how we were made to be. Because you see, resting uh, your life on th- other things, whether they could be, could be anything, could be images of Baal, Asherah poles, uh, money, sex, Justin Bieber, whatever, okay? But any of those things will leave us empty. Do you want to give you another quote, just to kind of layer this, to give different images? Another prophet in the Bible, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2.13, addresses this exact thing. He says this, he's recording what God's saying to Israel again. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns. A cistern is a well, and that can hold no water at all. And just think about the imagery used, powerful imagery, What Jeremiah's saying is that just as our bodies need water to survive and to do what they were made to do, our spirits are designed so they need God. That's how human beings are. And even, actually, if we invent other gods and live for them, 
They will be cracked cisterns. They will be broken wells. And if we go to them for the spiritual nourishment that we desperately need as human beings, we'll find they have nothing there for us. They might have all other sorts of things in those wells that could even be good things, but they won't have that thing, and that's the thing that we desperately need. But actually, it's, it's worse than this. It's not that our idolatry just leaves us empty. It does something even worse. Look what Paul says. Let's go on in Romans 1. He says as a result of this kind of exchange we make, we swapped God, stopped worshipping him for created uh, beings. Verse 24, so God, and you're thinking, well, I know what happens. I know what God does. He gets angry, punishes. What's he going to do? Lightning bolt at the ready. Here we go. Smoke them. Now, this is what it says. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Can you see again, it's speeding ticket versus tree. This is definitely tree here. God's saying, what's he going to do? Is he going to pull you over before you get to one? He's like, look, you know what? This is my punishment. I'm hands off. I want you to see what this looks like. I want you to see where this road leads if you continue like this. Verses 24 to 28, he talks of three things we get abandoned to. Verse 24, abandon God abandons us deliberately to do degrading things with each other's bodies. Verse 26, to shameful lusts. To verse 28, to foolish thinking. What's his point? What he's saying is the same as the judges. If lesser things take the place in our lives that God is meant to take, we will become lesser. We will get shrunk. We will be distorted in that way. So look at the words. Our bodies become degraded. We are filled with shame. Our thinking becomes foolish. Incredibly strong language from Paul because he wants to make a very strong point. Serving idols never just stays in here or even in here or even behind closed doors. It never stays there. No, it affects everything we are, everything we do, and ultimately it will destroy us. Can you see why God might be bothered about that? It might be a problem to him. Now, Paul actually, just in here, to, to note this, he focuses, you see it more if you go into the passage in more depth, but you can see it even from what I've said. Uh, he focuses on a harmful attitude to sex is uh, where, he, where he lands things, although uh, you could put any number of other things uh, in there, as I, as I will in a minute. But just to just kind of say, this, why did he do that? I think we can understand that, and I think it makes a bigger point, in that if we, uh, as people, remove God, and as a culture remove God, we still have to have something that is the most valuable thing, and that means usually people fill that role, and humans become the ultimate reality. And therefore, what happens is very human things become almost divine things. And it's not only our culture that would put sex on a particular pedestal uh, in this regard. Now, sex uh, would be something that, in many ways, is one of the most human things. It's an incredibly earthly and physical thing, but that's not how it's presented in magazines, on the telly, and on the internet. I'm sure we're aware of that. Sex is this uh, presented like this spiritual, almost like magical activity. Like it's like the fountain of eternal youth and the tree of life rolled into one. Like that's how people talk about it. It's very fairly to be said. It's one of the gods of our age, and it's a, it is. It's a gift from God, according to the Bible. But once it's put in that place, a place it was never meant to have, and it really shouldn't have. Well, it doesn't take long before it mutates into something very, very different. If we swap God for sex, you do this individually, or as a culture, what happens? Well, it ends up with us objectifying other people, making people into objects, chasing after meaningless experiences, 
And if we continue, we lose the ability to properly connect with anybody at all. It degrades our bodies. Paul's right. We could do a number of things, as I said before. If you swap God with money, what happens? Well, then very similar. You end up commodifying other people, thinking, what can I get out of you? You accumulate stuff that doesn't matter, and we then put ourselves on this endless pursuit for more. And what's strange about this is we all know, and you could recite with me, it doesn't satisfy getting stuff. But we all do it. Why? Because we put money and possessions where they shouldn't be. If you uh, replace family, a God for family in this way, this is a real idol in our age, idolizing children. For those of you who have kids, this is a real temptation for us. If you do that, do you know what happens? Sadly, I've seen this in, in friends of mine. Not, not in the church here, just so you know. I'm not pointing out on you guys. Um, we build families that are so insular and inward-looking that the kids that we idolize take a look and they say, there's nothing here for me. You've given me nothing. And they resent it and they kick off. We treat them so well. What, what are they doing? Our family doesn't belong there. The kids are, our kids aren't God. Sex, money, family, whatever. You know, they're good things, but they're not gods. And if we treat them like they are, we will be degraded, ashamed, and depraved and foolish. What we serve in our hearts will show themselves in what we serve in our thoughts, words, actions, habits, and lifestyles. If we get the first out of balance with reality, everything else will be thrown askew. Jonathan used a phrase last time. It's, it's a great phrase. I've just nicked it wholesale, mainly because it rhymes, which I always find helpful with phrases like this. But it's, this is the question uh, Jonathan asked. He said that we choose between gods that enslave and the God that saves. Remember that? It's a, it's a great phrase. We choose between the gods that enslave and the, gods that, the God that saves. And uh, the slavery is very real and it's very harmful. And it is the result, as we've seen, of God's punishment, his anger, his wrath. We haven't had time to go into that stuff today. But just to say, say, God doesn't stand by passively, emotionally, while we destroy ourselves. I think that's something that, yes, you need to think through, but it's a huge relief to us. It's not good. It wouldn't be a good thing for God to go, yeah, you're killing yourselves. Oh, well, you know. Que sarah, sarah. That would be awful. No, he's emotionally engaged here. Okay? But even though there is an element of judgment, this punishment is out of love as well. You see, what happens is, as God gives us over to the things we worship, the things that are inside come outside, and actually what happens is we see how bad they actually are. No one really cares about speeding until they hit a tree. Sometimes it's got to be something, something to jar you and say, whoa, I've got to change what I'm doing. And that's exactly what happens in the passage. So well done, survived Romans 1, I think, anyway. Let's go back to Judges 3 and see what happened. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. The Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. Oh, what's that name again? Cushan Rishathaim. Yeah, Cushan Rishathaim. Good. Uh, so there was peace in the land for 40 years. I got it all wrong last week. I've just been practicing. So I'm just going to milk this as much as I can. Um, so basically what happened is they saw the state they got themselves into, okay? What did they do? They recognized they were in trouble and they cried out for help. Very, very simple in that sort of regard. And on the back of that, that was the key moment. God sends them help. He sends this rescuer. Guys, it's slightly easier to say, Othniel, okay? Now, Othniel, we don't get a lot of information about him here. And to be honest, there's not a whole lot in the Bible as a whole. But we need a couple of things probably 
to point out about Othniel is that he is from particularly good stock, Othniel, if that's of interest to you. And we know that because of the reference to this guy, Caleb, his uncle. Okay, Caleb's a proper grade A Bible hero. Like, he doesn't put a foot wrong, Caleb. He's one of those guys. He trusts God when everybody else doesn't trust God. Okay? He leads the number one tribe to victory after victory. He's like all action hero, kind of godly prophet, all of that sort of stuff. I don't think he's a prophet, but anyway, you get the idea. He's a good guy. So by putting them together, the writer's making this point. This is a good guy. Thumbs up for Othniel. Okay? He's also, similarly in Caleb's kind of wake, the only judge who is presented as flawless. Now, I'm not saying that Othniel was flawless. I'm not saying he was perfect. He obviously wasn't. This is a very short account. But the, the author of the judges, he's the only one of the judges who none of his flaws are presented to us at all. And uh, he's kind of like this kind of, in a sense, presented as the perfect judge. But what we've got to notice is this. Even with Othniel, the perfect judge, the, the, the nephew of the great Caleb, we are not encouraged by the writer here in any way to put a human hero on a pedestal. And we will see that very, very clearly in future weeks. But even with this guy, there is a hint dropped into for us just to stop us from getting the wrong end of the stick at the beginning. And the hint's in verse 11. It's a very fitting end to the passage of, of Othniel, but it says this, Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Full stop. Okay? unremarkable end to his story you might think but here's the problem with human heroes very simple problem they die that's what happens to them and often rescued the israelites he won them 40 years of peace but after that full stop in the very next verse looks what happens verse 12 once again the israelites did evil in the lord's sight they are right back to where they were at the beginning the book of judges guys is not a book to make us look to human heroes. It's a book to make us look past human heroes for a better rescuer. Please remember that as we look at all these stories. There's confusing bits, there's, there's odd bits, but that's what's going on in this story, these stories. For you, you may recognize a need today. You might not have put it in the way that I put it earlier, but you might say, yeah, look, I need some fixing. I need some help with these things. But maybe today you're looking for a solution in a human rescuer. This passage and this book, among many other things, one of the key themes of this, this book would be saying that no human being, no friend, no spouse, no child, or no whatever is going to rescue you truly from those problems. Why? Because people can deal with the symptoms of our diseases. They can't deal with the disease. Othniel fixed the Kushan Rishathane problem pretty well. Did a good job with that. I reckon that guy ended up in a dungeon with his head chopped off. That seems to be what they did in those sort of days. He fixed that problem well. He didn't solve the idol problem one bit. And that was the real problem. And so the minute he disappeared, the problem resurfaced. And as the book goes on, for the heroes, you'll see this, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. This book, along with the entire Old Testament, points us not just towards any old rescuer. It points us towards the rescuer. Hundreds of years later, when it looked like all of Israel's heroes had failed and they'd, they'd messed it up, and Israel is humiliated, it's a backwater of a Rome, it's not even its own country. When that happens, the real rescuer comes. Jesus of Nazareth. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus lived a life per perfectly demonstrating how to drink from the right well. You think, what does Jesus, what does a perfect life mean for Jesus? It meant that he put the one who was at the center of everything at the center of his life. 
He worshipped and served the one that deserved worship and, ser- worship and service in the way that he deserved. I think we could put it like that. And what happens was, as he did that, he served that God, his father, to such an extreme that he allowed himself, in service to his father, to be killed in the most excruciating way uh, uh, possible at that time, crucifixion on a Roman cross. And he did it to pay the full punishment that our sins, and our, whether they're outward or whether they're in here or whether they're in here, all of them, he died so we could be forgiven from that stuff. Because through his death, he didn't just deal with the symptoms of our problems. He dealt with the problem. It's forgiveness for us, saying, look, God forgives you for these things. His anger's not on you anymore, it's taken off you. And also, at the same time, he found a way to change us and change our hearts that we could get our lives lined up right again. It wouldn't happen straight away, but he did something to us to make that possible, to effect a transformation. And of course, Jesus' story doesn't end (laughs) there. It doesn't end, Jesus, son of Joseph, died, full stop. It's not the end of the tale. The third day after his death, he rose again. What that means is this. This rescuer's legacy will never be erased. It will never be cancelled out. Even today, this rescuer stands there to you saying, I can offer you a way to realign your heart and sort out how that's affected the rest of your life. We can serve the one who deserves serving and worshipping again and get our lives reordered as they should be. And he's there right now. As you sing in a few minutes, he's here with us. The rescuer, right there. We don't have to call out, where are you? Where are you? He's here at our sides. He comes into our hearts. He's there when you go to work on Monday. He's there when you, you mother your kids. He's there when you spend time with your friends. He's right next to you because his death was not the end of the story. And as we go through this book of Judges, you know, these heroes, I'll tell you what, they get a lot more interesting than Othniel. But please, resist the temptation to get too caught on them. These guys are not role models for us. There's things we can learn from them here and there, but that's not why they're here. Now, these guys are shadows. They're often very distorted shadows, actually, but they're shadows of the true rescuer they point towards. Okay? These guys could rescue for a short period of time. Jesus can rescue us thoroughly and completely and forever, even today. So let's close uh, this with... I want to land two questions on you just to see how you respond to Jonathan's challenge. Do we, are you serving gods that enslave or the God that saves? My question would be this. Firstly, what p- powers have you been turned over to in your life? I think that's the best way I could put that. What powers have you been turned over to in your life? What negative habits or tendencies have come to control you? And I, I would use the word control in, in that case carefully. You could be here today with any number of different slaveries. It could be gambling. It could be self-harm. It could be an eating disorder, an addiction to pornography. You could be trapped by fear, anger, greed, bitterness. It could be any number of other things. But listen, whatever it is, I want to encourage you, there is rescue for you, and the turning point for you is the same turning point as it was here. Please don't try to fix it yourself cry out to help. Cry out for help. He sent his rescuer. Jesus is up to the job. There is no hole that you could be in that is so deep that Jesus doesn't have a rope long enough to get down there for you. Call out to him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, found in Psalm 34, it says this, this poor man cried 
and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. It sounds like a wonderful like kind of formula, magic spell almost. Aha, great, any trouble, anyone. Okay, I'll just call, God, come here, come on, out of the trouble. There's a catch in that verse that's very, very tough for us. That's fine, he'll deliver us without troubles, but what do we have to do? We have to recognize we're the poor person. This poor person, yeah, I'm poor. I'm poor. I've got nothing to offer. I can't deal with the solution. I can't get myself out of this pit. It's how we came to being a Christian. It's how we live every single day. And you know what? This is the deal. If you come to him like that, he rescues you. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him, delivered him from all his troubles. Come to him like that. Last question. What is on the throne of your life? What have you put your hope in right now? Let's flush out some of these bargain basement gods, shall we? And let's show them where to go. You may be a Christian here, but actually, if you've been honest from what I've said, you're thinking, actually, I'm serving other gods at the moment. God isn't the one I'm getting out of bed for in the morning. He's not the one who excites me. You know what? This isn't spoken today to condemn you and make you feel bad. This is, this is spoken so you come back to say, Lord, I'm sorry. There is repentance we need to do. Please help me. And God says, yes, of course I will. I've got the way. I've, I've fixed this. I've, I've got a way to do, sort this out. It might be that for you, everything is going along really smoothly at the moment. You think, well, there's nothing, nothing happening. No, there's, no, there's no Kushan Rishathane. There's no kind of physical manifestation of this. And for you, I would particularly plead with you to take the warning of judges. Because that could be the case today, and it may be the case tomorrow. But this book would say that won't be the case forever. What we serve in our hearts will reveal itself. And it's much easier repenting before anyone else knows that we have need to be rescued. Anyone else can see it. Probably not the best motivation in some ways, but you know what? It saves a lot of pain if we do it early. Finally, you may be here and you're not a Christian, and you could openly say, I imagine this point, no, I haven't lived for this God. This God has not been my driving motivation up to this point. I hope today, at at the very least, that you would have begun to understand why the Bible considers this to be such an important topic. We have been made with a hunger and thirst for our creator that nothing else can fulfill. And if we try to fill that with other gods, well, actually, our lives will be empty, but even worse, we'll be thrown out of balance and distorted. Not just internally, not just behind closed doors, but in the outworking of who we are. My plea to you today would be to cry to God for help, to come to Jesus and let the true rescuer realign your life with how you were made to be.